Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Professor Robert Castle. Castle teaches history and film criticism at a small academy outside Trenton, New Jersey. I saw the movie when it, about the time it came out in, uh, in May of 1968. Mm. And I think I'd seen some Kubrick films before that, but, and I was at the time 16 years old. And I'd say 2001 sort of, clasped itself to my life immediately and i've basically the film has sort of followed me or i followed it for the next 42 years and mm. i i would say at a certain point i wasn't a cinephile by any means though i like film it wasn't until the 1980s that i began to like take it seriously and i began to study the kubrick films especially and essentially since then I've been writing about his films among you know other things and I think I've written about most of his films in some form or another mm -hmm. uh and to th I you know if people ask me what my I don't really don't believe in a favorite movie or top 10 list or anything like that but I would I think objectively 2001 probably is more effect on my life in terms of a work of art than any other. And mm. but it's strangely enough I think the movie I watch the most in Kubrick is The Killing, which I wow. find almost like a a prose poem in a way. I think it's the tightest most efficient movie I think I've ever seen. It it, it its rhythm is just so good and the time scheme aspect of it is so intriguing that I, I, I probably watch it like once every two months or so. Oh wow! <laughs> Whereas, when now obviously I I don't I, I don't know I've never seen it on a big screen thing since it did come out in '56. But you know, in contrast, when 2001 came out, I think I saw it about four or five times at a theater, and I, in fact, I saw Planet of the Apes the same day that I saw 2001 back in May of 68 and I find and, and to me there are two films uh that you know sort of deal with similar things uh and I think one of them Planet of the Apes has sort of fallen by the wayside as it probably should have and 2001 has prevailed both in the quality of its ape costumes as well as I think its themes and such but what about those themes? What, what, tell me, tell me your take on what themes he seems to be exploring in 2001, and, and how that how those are similar to, to the themes he explored in other works, if if they are. Uh, well, I think, in fact, I think his whole work is uh, the 13 made films are sort of of one piece in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think the skepticism 
with technology is is a sort of high on the list uh as well as a great even a greater skepticism toward authority uh a a i wouldn't go so far as to say it was he had a um a cynicism toward the spoken word but i think the the fact of the minimal dialogue and the what people say is generally deceptive uh and the fact that two segments of the film have no dialogue i think his his sort of um distrust of what people say over what people see i think is maybe one of the major things that 2001, I think, is sort of a culmination of that, but I think all his films deal with that in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, I also, in, in <clears throat> talking about the film, the um, I, over the 40 years, I've had different takes on it. I, I think in when I first saw it, and, and the realism of the film has always staggered me. And you, anybody calling it a science fiction film, I've always found to be a, the, you know sort of ludicrous in a way. Uh, mm. And I, as a 16-year-old, I think I was caught up in the whole extraterrestrial intelligence part. And I think that's what partly grabbed me. I mean, I thought this film was going to tell me the meaning of life. I think that's the kind of hold I was mentioning before. And then as I got older, other things came in. I, one book that really, I think, did a lot to sort of mature my view of the film was a, a book by Jerome Agle called The Making of 2001, which mm -hmm. came out, I think, uh, I, that did a lot to sort of organize my thoughts about it and see what other people thought. And I think I moved away from my sort of, uh, <clears throat> say, a juvenile view to a slightly more mature view. Uh, then I think I fixed on the technological aspect, especially how. Uh, and why Hal cracks, so to speak. Um, and then I think it moved on to, <clears throat> I would say, a more philosophical approach. Uh, I've, I think fairly early on I saw the film uh, and Kubrick's work, or especially this work, being a sort of exemplifying uh, the philosophy of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, especially Thus Spoke Zarathustra, with the, oh, you know, the sort of coda for the movie, being the work by Richard Strauss, also Sprague's Zarathustra, that sort of was a opening. <clears throat> and I think since then it's even moved on further, and, and, and it gets to, I think, one of the major themes, and this is sort of what I'm dwelling on now in my writing about him, is the theme of violence. I think mm -hmm. if you look at almost every film, I think his film, his films deal with why... why human beings are, uh, have such violent relationships, why it's either so important, necessary, inevitable. And I think from fear and desire and even maybe day of the fight onward, I think his work uh, is sort of keeps on coming back to that. And and I've recently been reading a guy, Rene Girard, who's one of his most famous books is called The Violence and the Sacred. And I find a lot of his themes are sort of dramatized in Kubrick's work, um, especially a, an idea called mimetic violence, which I think Kubrick's use of doubles throughout the film, uh, his films are uh, you know, consistent. Uh, 2001, for instance, I think you have doubles all over the place. Uh, uh -huh. 
But uh, the one I like to focus on, I think, uh, is the Dave Bowman and Hal, especially the fact that Dave has to kill Hal. I think that's, I think it's this moving scene in the film for a film that's not exactly, you know, I think a tearjerker, you, you might say. But <laughs> it, it, but I think it, it's compelling, uh, and the film takes a, a really dramatic turn at that point in terms of uh, leaving the realism, in a way, uh, when he terminates how It's like he's leaving behind a theme. This is a sort of a Nietzschean, I think, uh, view, going on to a new type of human being. That's where mm-hmm. I see the Nietzschean connection. But, uh, do, you, do you see, what, what do you see his relationship in general, or what he's saying about technology uh in 2001 uh on the one hand uh since the film itself is so technologically uh i think superb and 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 actually uh, i think kubrick embraces it in a way and this gets to another one of his scenes i think there's this i think dwelling a self-critique of his his own view Uh, he's like Kubrick as a director wants to n- sort of nail down everything. He wants to know everything. He wants to have every aspect of his film under his control in terms of themes, in terms of what goes in it. At the same time, his his films critis- or critique that type of um, uh, outlook, which I believe is the outlook of a technological society, uh, Johnny Clay, for instance, he starts it off early in his films. Johnny Clay is a sort of double for Kubrick in terms of trying to control an operation, a bank heist. Uh, hmm. And I see Johnny Clay's bank heist to be a sort of parallel to Kubrick making a movie. And I think 2001, to a great extent, is as self-conscious a movie as there ever Ever was uh, so. On the one hand, Kubrick's I think attracted to this and and really went to great lengths to uh, I think glory in it. And I think some of the use of the music exemplifies this. The sort of poetic, um, almost visually visual poetics of the spacecraft uh, going toward the uh, space station at, to the themes of the um, blue. I think it's Blue Danube. Yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, there's a romance there with it. On the other hand, you have a killer computer, which mm-hmm. I guess is the closest you're going to – I think that's maybe the science fiction part. But uh, but that, but the fact is that Hal is the most sympathetic character in the movie. And I think one of the – I, I just wrote down, like, what are the major questions that this film sort of leaves people and – I came up with pretty much three. What is the monolith? Uh-huh. Uh, why does hell kill everybody? Or and like, why does he crack? What causes it? And what's the meaning of sort of the last segment of the movie, the Stargate, the Room, and the Star Child? Mm-hmm. Um, but and I found I, I've read I, and I've read a lot about people or people, speculations of why Hal cracked, and uh, ultimately none are satisfying. Because I think there's a lot about the film which I I compare it to a film like Rashomon where I think you get into a trap by trying to figure out 
the movie, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think you have to sort of embrace the movie's own terms, and and I think this is what Kubrick was about in his his movies, uh, and that's why I think, especially starting with 2001, there begins a divide between the critics of Kubrick's work, people who who loved his previous work, suddenly sort of drift away, not all of them, but many major ones, because I think they can't, they refuse to sort of uh, go inside the movies. Um, mm-hmm. They're repelled by the what they consider the formalities. Um, and I think it's, it's it's somewhat frustrating to read reviews of the movies. And the other thing is, I think Kubrick's always ahead of the critics. Uh, as it turns out, it was you know some of the movies like Barry Lyndon and Shining, which did not get embraced when they first came out critically, are sort of seen as masterpieces. And and sort of especially The Shining, which I think yes. was um, yeah. and and. And to some extent, I see uh, of all his movies after 2001, I think the closest to 2001 cinematically, thematically, to some extent, is The Shining, uh, in a way. But you know, it is interesting because the, the the most interesting conversations I have had about a Kubrick film, with the most varying interpretations of its meaning, has been The Shining, and it's something that I haven't expected. I mean, I've heard. I've heard a lot of things about The Shining. The, the most interesting was that it, it really seems to be a, a statement about the genocide of the American Indian. Right. And at, at first you hear that and you kind of laugh, you know. And I, I thought, huh? Well, explain that. And it's it's there. And actually, there it, it fits into that preoccupation with violence as well that, right. that Kubrick explored in his work. Um, well, his the violence, and, and this is the other consistency. You can go through all his films uh, where there's a special war-type sequence, and either you do not see the enemy, or the enemy, like in Fear and Desire, are played by the same actors, or two of the actors uh, play the same role, or play, I think, the enemy, and two of them are on the other side. They end up killing them. So, And what you get in a lot of Kubrick films is what do you call friendly fire, friendly kill, like in Dr. Mm-hmm. Strangelove, they're killing their own men. And it's actually disgust to some. Somebody says, we're going to be killing our own boys. Uh, and you see this in a Full Metal Jacket. The only enemy you see close up is a woman, a woman who looks somewhat, at least in one, a couple frames, like Wendy, <laughs> at least in the sort of gauntness and black uh-huh. hair and such. Uh, but, we, but going back to what you said about... The Shining, and the, the thing I find similar is the open, the, the open ending. Like, what what do we make of the fact that Jack is on the wall in 1921? It's, you know, I mean, I've read and I've read a ton of stuff about it, and I'll tell you, there's no consensus. Just like there's no consensus about the end of 2001, and I mean, it's a way you said I have to figure out what it means in the context of the film, which I think means sort of accepting, you know, how I think the Kubrick arc, if you will. I, uh, that's why I have more faith in Kubrick than I do in most of his uh, critics, both good, at, you know, people positive and negative. I, I think he's one of these few artists and few even thinkers who I think is is ahead of the curve 
um, and I think this is true of, you know, and beyond, you know, film, but I think he, he's one of the few directors, uh, I think, and he's like, I think he's like Hitchcock in, in that sense. I think he's a lot like Fritz Lang and the Coen brothers. Uh, somebody, I've written several articles uh, with dealing with the Coen brothers and Kubrick, and, mm-hmm. and I find their career and the reaction to their films to be similar uh, at times. And plus, they may, I think they do not hide the fact that they are absolutely on a Kubrick track in terms of associating their films with Kubrick films. There's always keys to it or allusions. Uh, some are more blatant than others. but And that goes mm-hmm. to, I think, ultimately the the impact Kubrick has had on cinema, which I think is, you know, fairly as strong as anybody else. Uh, right. You know, and I think the Coen brothers are not slavish toward Kubrick like De Palma is to um, Hitchcock. I think they're actually, in some ways, I would go so far as to say they're interpreting, they're, they're trying to play out how what Kubrick means to them. And, and you know, and and you know, it's, I don't think they're replicating him. Right. I think they 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 have to deal with the master in a way, uh, mm-hmm. and that's you know, and I think that's not the worst thing. I I, I know there are certain writers uh, that I feel the same way about that. I have to I deal with their work um, when I write my own work. I mean, in some ways, and and sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's not, but I. You know, there's certain runners I just have I got to deal with. And well, and there's Kubrick is a is an artist who, whose work you do have to grapple with. There's a there's an ambiguity, obviously, that runs through his work. And I I I'm not out to I, I like it that that so much of his films remain a mystery to me. Uh, because it almost feels like if I if I have figured out everything in 2001, I could say, okay, well that's great, got that out of the way. Let's what's what's next? You know, there's and there's a reason why these films last as long as they have, and they're they and because they constantly reveal themselves to you, reveal new truths to you every time you watch them. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> I find this out, and when I, I have, I'm, I teach high school, and I, I have a film course. So I show the f- films to girls that are like 16 and 17. It's all girls' school, and well, 2001 is the toughest, one of the toughest ones to show because mm. they do not, their pace of life is not the 2001 <laughs> yeah. pace. And I think, but it's amazing how the films. Uh, I think the film has reached. Icon status and and you know sort of permanent status, but I think it's interesting to see how new generations uh, uh, see that film. I mean, they see. I mean, Clockwork Orange is more accessible uh, in a way. I even though they don't know what the heck's going on. Not that I show, but I know certain uh, even college people who watch it don't know what the hell's going on uh, Uh or what this movie's about. It's uh, maybe that's what how, how people felt back in. 71 when it came out. The Shining tends to be the most popular. Uh, they they want to see it. They should know about it. I tend to talk about it a lot in my classes. For uh, I think uh, 
you know, it's it's a movie, and I think critics sometimes lose sight of this. Most of the people I know who either saw it back in 1980 or see it today are scared about what's going on, like in the, just the surface content. You know, just like I was involved in knowing whether aliens influenced, uh, you know, human intelligence. Likewise, the contemporary viewer is still scared by The Shining. You will not – I don't find many critics who really acknowledge that. They tend to dismiss it as, again, too formalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's an unnerving film. And, and you know, I mean, you had mentioned before about um, the, the violent aspect. I mean, it is about a guy who's going to kill his family. Uh, you know, something and, – and in terms of American critique, I think that's as – uh, I mean, you read about it every day, fathers killing their families, uh, and occasionally a mother, but it's usually father violence. And I think he's tapping into something pretty primal in the American psyche in this movie. And, and um, I mean, that's something I've been fixated on, I think, as long as I've been watching the movie. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, going on that, continuing on that track about Kubrick and his relationship to violence. Uh, starting with 2001, I mean the 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 monolith, uh, whatever you interpret it to be, if it is a, a device to share knowledge or wisdom to impart that on whoever encounters it, the the primates use that uh, that knowledge and they discover their first weapon and they right they kill with it, and then it ignores. A couple of million, a few million years of evolution, and it cuts to it cuts to a an armed satellite in space. Um, well, I find give, the, give me uh, your thoughts there. The in terms of the ape violence, I mean, what Kubrick does in that movie is combine actually two things, and this is another thing that occurs in this film, what they call the inspired moment, uh, and that inspired moment could be somebody. Speaking to somebody, uh, and Barry Lyndon, Barry Lyndon's trying to insult someone, and somebody's feeding him lines, but he changes the lines to be making me more pointed. I think this is before he has the bo- a violent boxing match, in fact, uh, with the sergeant and when he's in the British Army. Or when uh, Slim Pickens, he's inspired to fix the bombs. Uh, he has to like work on his own. Now the end result of that inspiration is going to be annihilation of the human race. But the fact that Kubrick always seen a lot of times combines sort of inspired thinking with violence. So the ape, his inspiration. Well, I think the first inspiration with the weapon is to kill animals. To because of theory, again the book has somewhat poisoned the view of the movie because the book explains things that the movie doesn't explain and it's sort of cheating to use the the book i mean it's even cheating to call moon watcher i guess moon watcher because that's you know that's the i think that's the term used in the 2001 book by clark mm-hmm. but there seems to be this association um between ins- inspired moment uh but then and this is uh, what I would call this imitative violence. What do they fight over eventually? The water hole. And, yeah. and why are they fighting over it because they want water or because they just, just 
because they've been knocked out, and now they have to come back and take the – it's like taking the water hole is more important than actually the, you know, getting water. So you get this, what, I get, what Gerard calls a cycle of violence. Uh, you know, so the, the apes are at the water hole, uh, I think Moon Watchers apes. They're driven away by a rival group. Uh, then Moon Watcher gets sort of some weapons, so to speak, and comes back and takes over the water hole. So I think what he's showing there is sort of a cycle of violence, uh, a cycle of uh, competition, which, when we get to uh, the moon, or actually the space station, we have them around the watering hole, which we call a bar, uh, where Floyd is with the Russians. And there it's more civilized. And, uh, but you do see the rivalries, and it's, it comes down to what the object of desire or, or is this. The Americans have a piece of knowledge that the Russians don't have, and the Russians want to know. Uh, and so the sort of rivalry for possessing this knowledge, which is a sort of theme, because the, um, as we find out, the Americans have sort of kept this knowledge to themselves, uh, you know, and sent up the spacecraft. It's, it's like we're not sharing it with anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've, I've often, you know, I, in one of my articles, I, I think on 2001, I, I, I find I, it is a curious. Um, there's a movie, speaking of the influence of 2001, if you know the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? Yes. When the uh, Coke bottle drops down. I sort of, that's sort of a model for the ape scene in a way, where you have this non-human object comes in. It serves a purpose for a while. Then people begin to desire it. Somebody clunks somebody over the head with it, and the head guide decides, we've got to get rid of this thing because it's a cause of violence and, and uh, disruption. And then the movie's epic journey starts with trying to get rid of this object. Uh, and, and they don't really, and the thing is, when it comes to the violence part, it's not the object, what the object does itself that they want. They just want, it's just having it in it is what is desired. And I think that's a theme that 2001 deals with and Kubrick deals with uh, consistently, uh, this, what I call the cycle of violence. And, and that's in The Shining, you get that right. too. The early parents, and it seems like, and this, uh, when I was thinking of other filmmakers that I think Kubrick uh, is similar to, I mentioned before Fritz Lang. Mm -hmm. Fritz Lang's work deals a lot with reciprocal violence and a sort of cycle of violence, and what one author calls the sort of machine, where destiny, the destiny machine, I think, or something like that. And in a way, in the Jack is caught up in that cycle. now is that the? I don't think that's the end all and be all of the movie, but I think it's part of the machine of the movie uh, in terms of the you know the themes and actions. Just like two thousand one has, I think a cycle, but I think it wants to. I think the movie, and this is why I think some people think it's Kubrick's most quote unquote optimistic movie that appears mm-hmm. that there is something that attempts to break the cycle. Unfortunately, nobody could figure out the last part of the movie. So what can break the cycle is almost ungraspable in its own way. Um, well, it starts it, with the dismantling of, of how. Right, of intelligence, a lot of replication in how, like little monoliths. It's almost uh-huh. like we have to undo the little monoliths uh, 
And but then what are you left with? Yeah, uh, you know, another thing that I find uh, even Hal has desire, and this is I think one thing when you t- tell people that 2001 has comic moments, they sort of give you a uh, <laughs> raised eyebrow. But I think one of the sort of, and this is sort of, I guess what, and Cooper's been criticized for this as much as praised, the, I would call it the cosmic comedy in a way, the, the really removed um, comic view. In this case, it's, it's comic that Hal thinks that he can complete the mission. He's, he's slaughtered everybody because he wants to complete the mission. In fact, he's he desires to complete the mission because apparently he's been excluded, or he wants to exclude other people, I should say, uh, since he sort of knows about it and doesn't want to share it. But what's he going to do when he gets there? He can't do anything because he's a machine. He can't go through the Stargate, so, uh, so to speak. So in a sense, it, it's... I, it, it seems the sort of dead end of desire seems to be uh, again, and that's another uh, Kubrick theme, which comes out in this first movie, "Fear and Desire," in terms yeah. of just the title. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then when he does his couple noir films, I mean, noir is about desire uh, to a great extent, frustrated desire. Frustrated dreams. So that was sort of a natural, I think, um, genre for Kubrick to explore. Though he he deals with um, film noir at the sort of end of the cycle. He, I think at the point where uh, film noir is actually named film noir in 1955 or called such by Robert Aldrich, I think it was. But mm. you, you know, his I, I've also heard it said that. His films are so kind of self-contained, where a lot of films that you can you can watch the film ends, you can imagine a life beyond for those characters. In Kubrick's films, uh, when they end, you can imagine it just starting up right where it, right again right where the the film started, it repeating itself. Uh, that that whole process, like in two thousand one, like in Clockwork Orange, right? Like the sh- like the Shining, and what interests me because you said the passing passing on the violence as it's expressed in the Shining. Do you find that the ending of the Shining, as it is now, is strangely hopeful because Danny does escape that violence? Except if you look at it as he 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 does kill his father. Speaking of inspiration. He's inspired to go back on his footsteps yeah. in order to trap the father. So in some ways, he has to live with the guilt that he's responsible for his father's death, regardless, I think, of whether you um, are justified, that is, to save your own life, defend yourself. Uh, there's, uh, and I'm not sure if Kubrick's going to allow that much hope. <laughs> uh, well, and, and, and but he's but he is he's destroying that that. Object of, of, or, of violence, but is but that gets that gets to I think one of the major themes of The Shining is the violence part of the individual or part of the environment, um, right? Because you when you talked about the um, annihilation Indians, they, is the Overlook Hotel America? I mean, are we a culture? I think it would be. I don't think Kubrick believed. Oh well, we're you know, 
or I believe it in this sense that he didn't say, "Oh, America's a violent culture," and like we're the only one. I think, I think he was, he could see that that human beings are like this. That now, I mean, he is an American. I think America is a prominent theme in a lot of his his work. Uh, you know, especially like Lolita and Strange Love and The Shining, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, I think are his possibly his quintessential American movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, part of the clockwork takes place in England, so that sort of precludes it in a way, only by, I think you make associations. 2001 deals with America, but I think in a remoter sense. But, I mean, I think he, I think he's dealing with what he knows. And I think that's also an element of his movies um, that he... He, I mean, you talked about the self-contained aspect. Well, I think he's mm-hmm. saying, well, deal with the movie. Uh, I mean, you had that problematic thing of the sequel to 2000. When I think I saw one of your guests was going to be the director. Peter Himes. Peter Himes. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of his work, and it was almost unnatural for him to take this. He had just done, I think, Outland. and But I think it's – I mean, that's the most the most problematic sequel, I think. Yes, <laughs> and, but, but there were books. But I'll give him this, and I don't. I, I'll give him this that there were books written after 2001 by Clark. So I think it's fair mm-hmm. game to do a sequel. But you're just entering, I think, a no-win territory. Uh, he thought and, so too. But I saw the movie when it came. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm buying into the. I mean, I saw Terminator 3 for God's sake because uh, I've seen the first two. Right. I, 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 once I buy into a franchise, I'm not going to. Uh, you know, give it up. Uh, and, and this gets to another thing. I wanted to mention this that I mentioned before how the, the sort of, and this becomes a theme a lot in a lot of writing about Kubrick is his misunderstood by critics, like when the films come out and such. Right. I find I, I gain a lot actually by reading what I would call misreadings of Kubrick because I, I think it opens up ways uh, to look at the movies, to see what the expectations are and to sort of understand what those expectations are and how Kubrick is destroying those expectations, which causes a lot of the irritation. And I think Eyes Wide Shut is I think his quintessential movie in terms of, uh, I think it's a film that anticipates its reception more than any of his other films. And I think the title itself, goes to I think it can apply to a lot of things in fact it's an open ended title in a way but I think it to a great extent it talks about seeing his movies uh and and I think that was one of his most misseen movies and it is speaking of a cycle here uh, that's uh I find the same and and actually Eyes Wide Shut is 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 the movie of of his that moves me the most. Uh, I mean, I I have a very strong reaction to Ice White Shot. It's a movie I I really adore. But I do do think that years from now, and I think it's it's happening now, uh, people are going to look at that movie again and say, oh, I missed something. I mean, I missed a lot. (laughs) And and they're going to re-examine. Yeah, what I never understood about the reception of that movie... Nobody took seriously the relationship. I, I just, or a lot of critics didn't. I just didn't understand that they really were dismissive. Of, yeah. And it had a lot to do with the casting of Tom Cruise. And, and 
I have a theory about Cooper that that by putting this husband and wife in a movie about a husband and wife, for some reason I think he must have understood that that wasn't a happy marriage or it was a problematic marriage, I'll say. Because I think the film plays on that to some extent uh, in a way that's sort of not very calculable, but um, at least the casting of Cruz is, uh, you know, I think baffled a lot of people, just yeah. like Barry Lyndon's casting, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, which I think, again, I think what he tries to do in these two movies, or at least I've, I, I, I think I've seen this written, I don't think it's my own thought, but he's, in a sense, having the actors grow into the role because that's what he wants the characters to be grasping in the same sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's, I mean, that is risky. Uh, and, and that goes to another aspect of his career. I think his films are always risky. They defy the genres that they're in. And that's, I mean, another, you know, he he's a director who, take specific genres it seems for each of his movies and uses that expectation of the genre to sort of you know as a foil yeah and you know and that's really i think starts with the killing i think um mm-hmm. since i think killer's kiss is just a little too creaky a little uh less um uh, I don't know. Doesn't have as much weight on it uh, in its making. I think the fact that it was you know independently made. I and mean, once he had about five hundred thousand dollars to work with, I think he could start doing his thing. Uh, though it's funny, Killer's Kiss does have what they call the Kubrick Corridor sequence in a dream, which uh-huh. prefigures the Stargate. I mean, it's ama- That's why it's amazing. Uh, just like, and, and I mentioned the use of doubles, which you find throughout his his movies. In in one of the when I saw Day of the Fight, I think when that first I, uh, came out on video, I mm-hmm. was like floored by the fact that he has he has this boxer, and the boxer lives with a twin. They actually share the same bed. I mean, it's like now this is I think fifty one or fifty two. I mean before he's made. Uh, Fear and desire. So, in a way, Kubrick seems like a self-contained filmmaker. A lot of these things uh, are already germinating when he's 21, 22, 23 years old. Uh, Maybe that's the advantage of being, I guess, an autodidact, that he was not a great student, uh, that essentially, I guess you'd say, he learned everything... From experience to some extent, or a lot of things. Though I, he did read like what two hundred books, I think, for his Napoleon project. Or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, so and, but that's that self-contained um, aspect, you know, is is there in a lot of elements of his films, and like you there, said, there's I think, something. You got. I'm so, so I'm so sorry. There's 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 a couple of points I I, I wanted to discuss with you about Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Uh, because this has inspired some further, some of your comments have inspired further conversation on this path. Uh, the the use of you just mentioned the dub the use of doubles. Uh, right. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think I read something from you uh, about one of our guests on the Eyes Watch Shut show, Thomas Gibson. Right. Uh, his casting. I may. 
Well, the article I wrote partly dealt with the the uh, the censorship of uh, this song they're singing during the orgy scene, mm-hmm. uh, and and the film ended up being banned in India. Uh, I think it was from the Bhagavad Gita, or ba- ba- I always mispronounce ba- uh, the Gita. We'll call. It. Uh, and this was objected to by the the Hindu Anti Defamation League, and they basically wanted a campaign. So I explored this. End up as, as a I, I was I think the first part of the article dealt with the two two censorships of the movie, the NC seventeen R controversy, and the um, the Hindu one. And I basically said the Hindu one was sort of under the radar, but it was effective. It did change. They did change the movie when it came out in England. They removed the singing, the passage. Uh, uh-huh. I wrote to Mrs. Kubrick through her art website and was asking whether, you know, he intentionally put this music in. Did you know? Because I think the decision to make um, to remove it was the producer uh, Jan Harlan. I think because mm-hmm. he responded to me. I was actually shocked that he, I, you know, managed to get you know somebody to respond. But he, he basically John, Har- uh, John Harlan responded to you through that website. Well, he responded through an email. The okay. only way I could get in touch with them was through this website. I think she, Ms. me too. Kubrick sells art, right? <laughs> right. And, well, he responded, and he, I asked, I, I asked, you know, basic questions because I wanted to know did. What did you know? What did I guess Kubrick intended with this music? And they basically told me, well, he didn't intend anything. He just chose uh, this bit of music. It turned out to be offensive, so they removed it. Right in in the um, when the movie came out overseas, and then in the DVD, I think it's removed too, or the video and mm-hmm. DVD. I didn't believe it. <laughs> so, but I said, but what I in in exploring why would he put it in? What was the deal? Uh, I came across the term, well, one of the terms Dharma came up in, in terms of Indian uh, Hindu religion and such. And, you know, at the time there was a TV series, Dharma and Greg. Uh, and who was Greg in that series? Uh, Thomas Gibson. Uh, now, why, you know, why is Thomas Gibson in this film? If you really look at it, <clears throat> He serves little purpose except to be the fiance for uh, I think it's Miranda Richardson, and he sort of just he seems to serve no purpose except to he looks <clears throat> excuse me a little bit like Tom Cruise and a very you know dark hair uh, yeah. probably taller but uh, <clears throat> so that's how I. Um, I'm not sure how much I can explain why the double, or I forget why, but I just, <clears throat> I think I, I think I, it was a sort of connective tissue to this, why the the Gita was in there, and I think I associate it with an episode in the Gita where the main, the person of interest in there is in the midst of a battle, but is sort of divorced from the battle, a lot like Cruz in the midst of this orgy, but he. The, you know the focus is more on him and his individual um i guess moral register if you will and that's where i i sort of create so i think the double i didn't see as like a major thing but as a 
sort of conduit to uh, this, uh, I guess you would, if you want to call it the Indian or Hindu interpretation. <laughs> you know, I, right. I, think I was just asking, why is it here? I think that's, you know, just like if they ask, well, why is he using also Sprague Zarathustra? You know, it's, fortunately, it's a little more obvious for 2001 uh, <laughs> than, it, than this is for um, the... Uh, Eyes wide shut, but yeah, what, is, mis- what a mysterious movie! What, I mean, it's incredibly mysterious that <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, I was looking for any way, you know, any different ways to find the way in. Yeah. You know, oh, speak. And, and the other aspect of the double, and I don't know if it was me, but I I thought the mask that Tom Cruise was wearing uh-huh. looked like Tom Cruise, you know, and. And I'm thinking, well, what what's this about? <laughs> I mean, except that this is a this is a movie, and this goes back to uh, I think the Stargate. If I my sort of if I have a toehold in the Stargate, in one of the articles I write, I, it, it, there is flashing of or we see the eye of um, Bowman. We just see the eye blinking as it's going through the Stargates. Uh, and I sort of see this I as a homophone for I, as in I myself, and that is, this film is now being stripped down to what it's really about. It's about the person watching the film and how that person responds to it. And to some extent, I think that Eyes Wide Shut is similar. I think, in a sense, we have to strip ourselves of our own mask. In a way, that's how I would sort of see it, and I think it's the same is true with the character of um, Cruz's. I can't think of his name at the moment. The doctor. Um, oh, the, but, the Sidney Pollack character. The no, the, no, uh, Cruz's own character. Uh, oh, in a oh way that, Bill Hartford. Yeah, yeah. It's it seems to me that this use of double or the mask is. Again, getting to getting a, a, a realistic or better understanding of ourselves, and, and sort of, and I think the movie goes through this stripping away. I think his conversations with his wife is part of it. Um, you know where it all leads to. It leads to an ending that's ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the store, uh, though. Though I think there is an anticipation of his next movie. Uh, uh, which was which AI, the movie that he produced, so to speak, for uh, and Spielberg made. Uh, I think there's sort of an allusion to that with that final scene with the. I think there's a teddy bear somewhere. Right. When she looks up for a teddy bear. Child. Yeah, yeah. You know. Again. I hadn't even thought of that. That's that'd be, that's amazing. You know, that's more right. speculative, but. He's not beyond that since he did have an uh, Clockwork Orange. He did Alex that a lot. Was going through the yeah. boutique, yeah, he goes to the boutique, and the first album up front is the 2001 Space Odyssey soundtrack, mm-hmm. which cover is in my uh, classroom on the wall. And we, we, <laughs> we have a mission statement that we have to hang on the wall. Well, that's not hanging; that's sort of leaning against the wall. And and I always tell my students, that's my mission statement when I point to the 2001. Uh, <laughs> I sort of identified my life with the movie. I, I, in one, I think somewhere I had 
wrote something where uh, I, if I'm when I die, I want the at my at my funeral or at my uh, wake, I want the movie to be playing. Well. <laughs> you know, I, I I think people who know me know. Like it, I'm, I'm very identified with Kubrick and my passion for him, mm-hmm. and and especially 2001. Uh, you know, both my students and uh, friends. Yeah, it, and family. I mean, it, and his, but his his work is so uh, conducive to to that lifetime of investigation. Uh, unlike any director, I can. I can think of. I mean, we we were originally going to do this as a as a relatively quick kind of a few episode series, but uh, I, I I realized that I can't do this series unless I approach it like Kubrick approached his movies and exhaust every possible avenue of, right, of I, thought. Yeah. Yeah, I still read. I mean, I'm still. I thought at one point I had read everything about 2001, but. The this was like back in the early nineties or mid nineties, but once the internet came out, more and more stuff, even sites, uh, the Kubrick site, a couple others, just provided more. And I, I'm like voracious for this stuff because I'm always looking for a, you know another thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think there was the last time I showed 2001 in, in my class. I think it was about a year and a half ago. I had come across something in an article which I never ever thought of, you know. And I'm telling the class, I said, "This is what this movie is about." I mean, I can't believe after 40 years, I didn't realize this, and I can't remember what it was exactly. But this is the type of movie it is. Uh, when you, I think it stems from looking at, uh, you know, you, you find allusions either to his other films or. Uh, speaking of uh, other things that came up in 2001, you have um, this sort of obsession with birth and birthdays. Right. Uh, right. One of the best articles I think I've read about a Kubrick film dealt with uh, the patterns of eating in his movies, and 2001 I think is is exemplary in this. You know, you have them. He shows the apes eating from the berries from the bushes. He shows them eating the meat. Uh, the raw meat. He has the people on the the astronauts and Dr. Floyd sipping straws with food. You have Bowman at the end at the table uh, eating food, and uh, then finally, have, finally eating a decent meal at the right. at the end, and when well, they've been eating nothing but cake. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And also, well, you also have the toilet element, uh, you yeah. know, where, yeah. I, again, I think one of, a funny scene is when Floyd is reading the zero-gravity toilet, uh, you know, the, <laughs> and, and toilets, and, and a lot of directors use, I mean, it's, it's a mainstay, for instance, in uh, Hitchcock films, uh, right. toilet scenes, but they seem to come up in uh, Kubrick films uh, as well, uh, like Eyes Wide Shut. The opening, the bathrooms. Uh, yeah, the opening. Uh, the girl he meets in the um, at the party, uh, which is a fairly critical scene because it sets up. The recipe. And that one thing I was always, I think it's somewhat ambiguous. You know, the, is it the same? I guess he he assumes it's the same girl that he revised dies later. But there seems to be some ambiguity about that, either in his own mind. Uh, 
And I, I don't know if I've... No, there either. is. There is ambiguity about it, but the, the actress that actually played Mandy... When we talked to her, she said, I, I was also the same actress okay. that played the person that saves him at the party. Uh, yeah. And, and is she the one who dies? You know, I think she's, I think she said that she's, she's, she's the girl throughout. I have to re, we're okay. including well, the we, interview. We, I, I actually, we wouldn't it. know if it was, he's making the assumptions. Like, I guess I'll have to go and look at this, but the, the, I would just point out just having watched the movie over, you know, several times. That I was always unclear. Like, hey, yeah, is this mm-hmm, the same one? Mm-hmm. Does he, or does he know it's the same one? The fact that he's looking at the way he's looking at her on the uh, on the slabs. It, I mean, he's trying to get some kind of, uh, I guess, identification. And and right. I think it, again, it goes to the theme of the movie. I, uh, you know, I think the ma- again the major danger with the Kubrick film is when you think. You know, you hit a home run that you've got it all, and, <laughs> yeah, and I've, yeah. I, I've, I'm fairly well versed in the movie Rashomon, and in fact, in writing an article about Rashomon, I did drag in 2001, uh, partly because of the ending with, at the end of Rashomon, they discover a baby, and it's mm-hmm. always been speculated what that's meant, uh, and, you know, the ending of the um, 2001 with the Star Child, what that's meant. Um, I mean, it, ultra ambiguity, and and but I, I just refereed an article on Rashomon for a, I think a, a magazine called Philosophy and Film, where the author is basically saying, I know whose baby that is type of article, or at least that's a good part of the article, and I was I, and, and he made a fairly decent case. There's a good circumstantial case uh, that he makes. But I think it's a day. I think it's a mistake, though, to go, you know, to you know, wrap it up, you know, as an uh, absolute. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's partly what I don't. Th- I think somebody like Kurosawa, I think Kubrick, and uh, and I think Bergman, there is an aversion to absolute. Anybody who knows anything is going to be doomed in their films, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and Hitchcock as well. Um, you know anybody who is asserting something? One of the articles I have about uh, Full Metal Jacket is called "Don't Follow Leaders," and I basically uh, it partly deals with why Animal Mother is called Animal Mother, um, but and also an allusion to the um, Bob Dylan song where he, he says "Don't follow Don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters," mm-hmm. and I think that's a I think that's emblematic of Kubrick films. You know, yeah, we have to follow somebody possibly in terms of knowing him and trusting them. You can't get along in life without a, that. At the same time, you have to be skeptical about what people tell you. And I think that gets to the heart of what his films are about. And I think he has the same view of himself. I think this is I think the greatest filmmakers contain their own critique in some way and I think that's true of Fritz Lang I think it's true of definitely of Hitchcock I think Hitchcock is the I think he understood his weaknesses as much as anyone but and, and I think he incorporates them in his movies especially his what, what one writer calls the dark side of genius uh, mm-hmm. well I think Kubrick does the same uh, I mentioned earlier the you know his fascination with technology at the same time the problems it's problematic. 
this why is it problematic because you're basically controlling how people respond to things and i, I think that's what he's trying to yeah. undermine yeah. in his artistic mission clock, clockwork orange too that that same message. i think that's the most overt yeah in terms of themes i mean in terms of themes coming to the surface the manipulation of how people should act. I mean, that's uh, – you can see why the book attracted him. Uh, I mean, it fits, mm-hmm. I think, so securely in in in, in his uh, worldview, I guess you would call it. Thank you. 